What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. It's interesting. It's, it's really not an episode of Tales from the Crypt. It's an episode of Gamcast, the podcast we started at Great American Mining to help bridge the gap between the Bitcoin mining industry and the oil and gas industry. Specifically, I am cross-pollinating uh, between the feeds right now in an effort to, to bring more attention to what we're doing at Gamcast. If you guys have been following the Great American Mining story and you're interested in it and want to learn more about what we're doing specifically, we started this podcast again to, to bridge the gap between the Bitcoin mining industry and the oil and gas industry. And uh, the episode I recorded last week with uh, Anas Alhaji, uh, I think, is a, a very good episode all around, and just in terms of macroeconomics with a, with a focus on oil and how Bitcoin may play a role as a settlement currency in international oil trade at some point in the future. Uh, so the posting this on TFTC is, um, has two purposes. Number one, uh, to bring attention to Gamcast. Um, I'm going to leverage the, the audience that we have here at TFTC. If you guys uh, are interested in the, the merging of the Bitcoin mining and oil and gas industries and want to learn more uh, about that, uh, it's a very hyper-focused conversation about that particular topic on a weekly basis. Go look us up on your local podcasting platform, uh, Gamcast, G-A-M-C-A-S-T. Subscribe to that if, if you're, again, if you're interested to learn more. I'm not forcing anything upon you, freaks. Um, I think I think we're going to be putting out some very interesting content uh, that, that Bitcoiners may like. And if you're in the oil and gas industry and you've, you've found TFTC somehow uh, and you, you want a more focused content about Bitcoin and oil and gas, this is the podcast for you. Uh, secondly, I'm posting it here too because it's just an incredible conversation. Anas is extremely, extremely smart uh, and and knows the oil and gas markets internationally in and out. And so, if you if you want to understand the importance of oil and gas and the and the nature of the politics behind what drives those markets historically and how politics plays into it today, how shale. Uh, rising up within the last two decades sort of throws not a wrench but changes the dynamics and again really interesting conversation about bitcoin as a settlement currency for international oil trade towards the end of this conversation uh it, it was very encouraging to see anas open to to bitcoin playing a role in the industry he's been focused on for decades and beyond that we talked about just common sense and anas is an incredible storyteller as well so some good Stories with good lessons throughout the podcast as well. I think you freaks are going to enjoy it. Uh, this episode is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. You guys already know all about them, but let me tell you about them. They're helping to stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats. We're saying sats, 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 sats because sats are the standard. Well, what are sats? Sats are the smallest unit of a Bitcoin. There's 100 million sats in one Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can stack sats. That's what we're trying to press here. Uh, cash apps going to allow you to DCA into SATs a dollar cost average. You set it and forget it. If you want to buy $10 a day, you can do that via the cash app. If you want to buy $50 a week, you can do that. If you want to buy $100 every two weeks, you can do that as well. You, you can do larger or smaller numbers, uh, smaller buys per day, week, or every two weeks if you want to. Uh, cash app's doing the damn thing. If you haven't downloaded it yet, make sure you do so. Use the code stacking sats. That's S T A C K I N G S A T S. You're going to get ten dollars, and ten dollars is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! 
This episode is also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Coming out with an incredible product that is available to U.S. users. Finally, they have a product that's available to U.S. users, and it's because it is a non-custodial product. It's non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending. They added their Lend at Hoddle Hoddle product, and now you can join peers and meet peers on the Hoddle Hoddle platform and do peer-to-peer lending and borrowing globally, anonymously, and on your own terms. If you're short of funds, uh, you don't need to sell your Bitcoin. Okay, If you need some liquidity, you can get some liquidity by using Lend at Hoddle Hoddle, uh, by borrowing, using your Bitcoin as collateral. You put it in a multi-sig escrow where you always hold one key so you have uh, you know exactly what's going on with your UTXO throughout the the length uh, and duration of your loan. Uh, you don't need to entrust someone with your funds. Again, your collateral always re- remains locked in that multi-sig escrow. Uh, if you have some stable coins laying around and you're a stable coin guy or girl and you want to earn interest, uh, again, Lendo Hoddle Hoddle offers, um, offers you the ability to gain interest on that by, by engaging in this, this borrowing platform. Um, so create your own offers and set your own terms. Go to Lend, L-E-N-D dot Hoddle Hoddle h-o-d-l-h-o-d-l.com lend.hodlhodl.com to check all this out if you want to do lending in a non-custodial fashion in a, in a somewhat uh, anonymous fashion uh, land at hodl hodl is there to let you do that leveraging the native properties of bitcoin so that u.s users can can engage in this so go check it out lend.hodlhodl.com last but not least we have our good friends at Compass Mining. All right, they're they're trying to democratize and, and let the little guy get in on the mining industry, which is crazy, uh, competitive right now, and it's a large barrier to entry. If you want to, uh, particularly capital, if you want to build a large mining operation, but if you want to get some skin in the game to get some sats via mining, Compass uh, wants to help everyone everyone have the ability to strengthen the network while mining Bitcoin profitably. So they put together easy bundles for buying and hosting uh, to remove all the complexity from the process. They're here really to make it easy for you to to go from zero to owning a miner to having it plugged in at a hosting facility with uh, competitive uh, energy pricing. Uh, so thanks to Compass. It's never been easier to mine Bitcoin. Check them out at compassmining.io. That's compassmining.io. C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O doing big things trying to trying to allow the little guy to get in on on the mining industry and again help uh, distribute hash rate and get more individual stakeholders involved so that uh it's 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 a little bit more decentralized from the mining perspective um yeah go check it out it's a really cool platform really good ux good customer service they're there to help you walk you through the process make sure that you're comfortable enjoy this episode with the nas again if you're liking this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review. Every little bit goes a long way. Check out Gamcast if you're interested in the intersection between the Bitcoin mining industries and the oil and gas industries. We're going to be putting out some content. We have some heavy hitters coming up on that podcast, including Alex Epstein. We'll be sitting down with him next week. Um, but enjoy this episode with Anas again. Extremely, extremely intelligent individual. Great storyteller and forward thinking as well. An old dog thinking about Bitcoin and getting uh, ingratiated or excuse me integrated with oil and gas international uh, trade markets. God, I blew that. Like, I'm gonna end it like that. Enjoy the episode. Take care.
You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Welcome back to Gamcast. Sitting down with Anas Alhaji. Very excited for this conversation. Had the pleasure of hopping on an hour-long phone call a few weeks ago uh, that had my mind running about uh, the energy industry and how Bitcoin may play a role in its future. Anas, how are you? Good, good. How are you? Doing well. I um, uh, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to pull you away from an OPEC meeting that's currently going on. Uh, well, uh, th thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, the meeting is going on right now. It seems that the Saudis so far are having their own way. But just like what we know about those meetings, they are not over until they are over. <laughs> so what, uh, what do you mean by the Saudis are currently getting their way? Well, the Saudis want just a rollover. They don't want to increase production simply being cautious they think that the market is not stable yet uh, it is clear that the russians want to increase production my view on that is that uh, the world right now is divided into two halves uh, a half basically where they are done with corona or almost done with corona and their economies are booming mostly in asia while the other half basically are still struggling the economies are still struggling the uh, airports basically are either closed or the borders are closed. OPEC members export oil to both parts. And if the OPEC member, member is exporting mostly to Asia, all they see is increase in demand. If they are exporting to Europe and the United States, all they see basically is flat demand. So you see people who do not want to increase and people who want to increase based on where their market is. Yeah, and so Russia, obviously feeding a lot of energy to, to Asia um, right. and China. It's like, hey, we, we want to increase. And this is like, it's always fascinating to me about OPEC is the way they coordinate all this production. Like last year, I think it's, it's a good topic to touch on. Like that's, that's the reason why the, the market fell out from under the shale industry, correct? Yeah, and Saudi and, and Russia sort of going, going to a battle at OPEC meetings around production, correct? Absolutely. Uh, this happened, just to be exact, this happened on Friday, March the 6th. And uh, once the meeting in the evening basically broke down and it was very clear when Novak came back from Moscow uh, overnight, uh, there was no deal. And uh, it is very clear that the Russians underestimated what the Saudis can do. And by the second day, uh, the Saudis announced that they will... Uh, uh, give major discount to buyers uh, in Asia. Uh, at the same time, they wanted to increase production to 12 million. And they did. Yeah. And I think that was a lesson to everyone. Uh, I mean, and the lesson was very clear that don't mess with the Saudis. Yeah. So the Saudis hold all the leverage in, in the international oil trade? Correct. I mean, to increase production from almost like 9.8 million to 12 was unheard of. Uh, many people, if you go back to what's been written even by experts, they doubted that the Saudis can reach 12. They doubted that they will ever do it. They always doubted their capacity. 
There are even books on that saying that the Saudis are lying about their reserves and production, etc. Now we know that uh, none of those were lies. They were able to deliver uh, 12 million. And once they deliver the 12 million, they prove to everyone they can do it. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most fascinating markets in the world, right? The, the oil trade and, and, and how the dollar plays into it, too. I'm sure we'll get into the dynamics of the petrodollar and, and its future. Sure. Um, and how, how that may evolve, how Bitcoin or, or something like it may, may play into those markets particularly. But again, like focusing on like oil production and like I was under the impression with the shale industry sort of booming, like maybe the, the U.S. would be able to inoculate itself from from uh, basically OPEC games and and uh, be self-sovereign from an energy perspective. But again, like you mentioned, like this this leverage that exists. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, let me just mention a couple of points here. Uh, uh, oil. When we drill for oil and get the oil out, we get oil with mixed with water. But we've been able to separate oil from water for 140 years. So that's not a big problem. But it is impossible to, support, to separate oil from politics. <laughs> oil and politics are intertwined. And oil and foreign policy are intertwined. Oil and national security are intertwined. We've seen this for the last 140 years, whether from the consumer side or the producer's side so that's why this is very interesting you add to it the economics you add to it the currencies you add to it the pricing in dollars or any other things etc and it becomes even more fascinating yeah i mean that's something i've been i've been following pretty closely over the last three years is the the contracts that that russia iran and china have been talking about um and uh, using basically to move away from the petrodollar system and settle their their energy trades and in, in their native currencies and rubles and in renminbi. Um, like, do you see that trend growing as as people uh, particularly? Well, the first fact is, and this is a general misconception throughout. I see it all over, even in the public press, on TV, on social media, especially on Twitter. We have to make a distinction between pricing oil in dollar and getting revenues or settlements in non-dollar. There is only one pricing mechanism in the world. Oil is priced in dollars, end of story. Mm -hmm. Regardless, oil is priced in dollars. Now, there are governments historically that converted their revenues to non-dollars, and people said, well, we launched the war on Iraq because Saddam Hussein priced his oil in, in, in euro. No, that's not correct. Saddam Hussein did not price his oil in euro. The Iraqi oil was priced in dollar and the UN was collecting all the revenues and they divided the revenues into three pockets and the Iraqi government will get only one third. And that one third stayed with the UN and everything that Saddam Hussein and his government wanted to buy they have to send a list to the UN that will be approved and then they will give them the money for it. Mm -hmm. So Dan Hussein said, if you are holding my money, why you are holding it in dollar, just put it in Euro. There were several reasons for that. So they converted what's in that pocket, what's in that fund to Euro, but the price of oil never being priced in Euro. The same thing with Gaddafi. It's exactly the same thing. Now, Iran started 
uh, kind of a market years ago and no one hears of it because there is almost nothing. And there are some domestic contracts, uh, but again, it's a conversion from the uh, dollar to the uh, local currency. Then China basically started their contract. If you run a correlation right now, if you run a correlation between Dubai Oman and the Chinese contract with the time lag, you get perfect correlation. What that means is still priced in dollar. We are just converting the currency. So oil has been priced in dollar, still priced in dollar, will continue to be priced in dollars. Now, some people are saying, well, this conversion basically will have an impact on the dollar. Well, this conversion been going on for, for decades. We don't have something new and massive to talk about this conversion to affect the, uh, uh, to affect the dollar. At the same time, we are seeing, let's put COVID and 2020 on the side for now. We are seeing kind of an explosion in global trade anyway. And with that explosion in global trade, we are seeing explosion in, in the use of various currencies, including the dollar. And the fact is, and this is what part of my work basically, and that's why I love my work, is the best research you can do is the research in the field. The best research you can do is research on the ground. It's not what people do in offices. It's not what the politicians are saying. And what research on the ground shows is any smuggler around the world, whether in Colombia, Mexico, Brazil, Venezuela, Iran, Afghanistan, or any other place on earth, including Iraq and Syria, if you give them a choice of currencies right now, they will pick up the US dollar. Yeah, it's the, it's the most liquid probably the strongest. Yes. And I, and so I guess that's the, the wary analyst and maybe politicians in the U S have is that the conversion away from dollars, uh, lessens the demand for dollars to an extent, or when you convert it, you're, you're selling dollars for, for other currencies. And they worry that that would inf or devalue the, the value of the dollar overall, but you're saying that the demand and across all markets is so strong to get dollars that it really doesn't matter when you convert that. That one, and in addition, I mean, if you look at, since we are talking about oil and currencies, if you look at the impact of share revolution, I'm sorry, I have uh, allergies today in my eyes, so I have kind of to wipe them off a little bit. Um, um, if you look at the impact of the share revolution on the US dollar, it's, it's a huge which is a reverse of what people are talking about. It's exactly the reverse. All of a sudden, we went from almost zero crude imports, uh, sorry, zero crude exports to exporting about three, three point two, three, four, almost three and a half million barrels a day of US crude. That's it being sold for dollars and that dollars basically are, 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 are paid for that oil. That did not exist before 2015. If you look at the U.S. exports of gasoline and finished petroleum products, it was going through the roof since the start of the share revolution. If you look at exports of NGLs, natural gas liquids, and within, uh, uh, since the start of the shale gas revolution until now, so we're talking about a period of about 15 years, we have a 30-fold increase in exports. 
Then you look at LNG. We used to import LNG, and the forecast basically we're supposed to import about 14 to 15 uh, um, BCF a day of LNG, which means that we're supposed to get that money leaving the economy, and that will lead to uh, serious problems in the economy. Now we have exactly the opposite. We are exporting uh, LNG. So the impact on the value of the dollar here in terms of trade, because without this share revolution, the trade, the, the trade gap would, be, would have been way, way larger. And that would have put a lot of pressure on the dollar. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the share revolution basically pumped up the dollar big time. So while everyone in the media is talking about this impact that you just mentioned, on the other side, we have this positive impact coming from the shale industry that probably outweighed that. But we don't know. I haven't done that research, but it, it, it definitely uh, has uh, a role. No, it makes sense. Like I was talking to uh, David Ramsden Wood earlier this week, and he was explaining that um, the shale industry is basically uh, met the demand the, the growth of demand globally uh, over the last six years like u.s production has... absolutely and that's why opec is mad why the saudis are mad uh, simply because uh, this brings us to the question uh, does opec want to kill shale or does saudi arabia want to kill shale the answer is no do they want to kill shale growth and the answer is no then what do they want well they want to share the growth. So if we are growing at a million barrel a day, for example, they want shale to grow by, let's say, 400,000, and then they, their growth and the rest of the world covered the 600. What they did not like, basically, is exactly what you just mentioned, is shale getting all that growth. Yeah. And so how does that work? Like, how, how did shale get all that growth? Were we able to just to export faster and at lower prices? Like how, how can this is kind of a complex issue, but since we are talking about oil and politics and everything else, one of the main reasons uh, uh, why shale basically being exported is that US refiners cannot handle it anymore. So we did hit a refining wall in terms of crude quality. Shale is light sweet. Okay. And we already used the capacity that we have in the United States for light sweet. We did some conversion. We have some flexible capacity that we switched to light sweet, et cetera. Then we had the refining wall. So any production above that has to be exported. Now, aside from that, there were other factors, mostly political. It just happened that Iran produces a lot of condensates. And we produce a lot of condensates with shale. And it just happened that Libya produces light sweet crude and shale is light sweet crude. So by imposing sanctions on Iran and by putting that em, em, uh, uh, embargo on uh, uh, that one of the factions in Libya led by Haftar basically put kind of uh, embargo or blockade on Libyan oil. So by losing the Iranian condensates and losing the Libyan oil, there was more room for US exports. So in a sense, economics coalesced with politics to lead to higher U.S. exports. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's so crazy how intertwined it. And so that's, I mean, when you go, it's like the whole, is, is that what drives U.S. foreign policy you know, throughout the 90s all the way up to today is oil wars. Is it, you know, do the, does the U.S. government use um, 
false pretenses to to get into conflicts and are the real pretenses uh, the oil at the end of the day in the commodities markets well you are right because we have a long history to prove this point historically when the oil majors or what we call the seven sisters controlled more than 90 percent of the global oil market they were supported by their own governments and their own governments basically used the armies to protect that uh, that interest uh, but throughout these periods, uh, those governments basically been relying on foreign oil. If you look at the Europeans, for example, they imported most of their oil. And th that's where kind of national security and oil basically merged. But there were other factors for the United States in particular, and that created other problems around the world. For the United States, they looked at oil in two ways they go together like the two silos, they go parallel with each other. The first one is from a foreign policy point of view, I don't necessarily that I need that oil, but if I am going to act against a certain government, let's say Iraq or Iran, and that's going to increase oil prices and therefore that's going to affect my choices. So if I have five choices to, to deal with Iran and higher oil prices are going to limit that to three, they consider that as a threat to national security, even if they don't act. Right. So just by limiting the, the choices, it becomes a threat to national security. The other one is, and that, that's exactly the case of Iraq. Uh, as you know, there are books, there are articles, there are a lot of people who believe that George W. Bush basically went to Iraq after Iraqi oil. And they said that it was a war for oil. I don't believe so. The United States did not go to Iraq because of the U.S. thirst for oil. Although during the Bush administration, we did not have shale at that time. It wasn't. But we know already there are facts on the ground that the U.S. Army protected the oil ministry while it let the uh, ancient uh, artifacts in the museum to be stolen, uh, let other ministries basically being burned. They protected the oil fields. So how do you explain that? Well, it's very easy to explain it. The, the main power of Saddam Hussein was oil revenues. So if you want to kill your enemy, even without killing him literally, if you just want to kick him out, you stop his revenues. And the only way you stop his revenues is basically by occupying the fields. That's number one. And then if you are in control of the fields and you can sell that oil, you can take the revenues and build a government of your liking instead of your taxpayers paying the money for a foreign government. Mm. So there is a strategic role in this case. The other that strategic is. importance is if you don't do it, then your competitors are going to do it. So are you better off controlling the Iraqi oil going to China? So you can choke China if you want to, or are you better off letting China basically control it and you are, you are far away? So these are two strategic choices that the U.S. made. So why can't we all just get along? <laughs> That's all I'm getting to, right? Like, and like, you'd think the emergence of shale would, and how successful it has been, um, arguably up to this point would, would help reduce this friction, but it seems only. Well, one of the, pro well, we have other problems with shale. So 
sorry again those allergies <laughs> well that's that's um, another thing i wanted to get into like we, we've been talking a lot about the political but like what are the capital problems with shale like shale sure. is misallocated let, let's, let's finish the strategic part of shale first sure because shale is light sweet and its uses are limited to gasoline and nafta mostly uh, that impact is completely different from being let's say uh, medium crude it would have a bigger strategic role if it was a medium crude okay way bigger that's number one uh, number two the availability of shale the availability of oil in the united states and the, avail the ability of the united states even to export oil uh, let's remember that shale added 8.5 million barrels a day within 10 years it's something almost unheard of i say almost because the saudis added more than that in the 40s and 50s uh, uh, but in recent times this is unheard of 8.5 million barrels to add from shale that's more than the production of kuwait and the uae combined and both of them are large OPEC members. That's enabled President Trump to impose sanctions on Iran and Venezuela simultaneously. So that's the other side of the coin, that it is, it did enable Trump do that. Otherwise, there was no way he would have done it. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah because what's Venezuela uh, crude? What's that make up? Is it sweet? Is it, is it medium? No, basically, it's heavy crude. It's uh, okay. similar to... The uh, Canadian uh, oil crude from oil sand, uh, mm -hmm. so it's it's a bit different. That's why the impact of it in the Houston area is larger than uh, what people expected. Simply because we needed that oil, and it took us a while. If you remember, they give exemptions and they waited for several months until they imposed the sanctions. They give that time for refiners to adjust and adjust their imports, etc. Okay, and the. Uh... In my time following these commodity markets more closely back in like 2013, 2014, Nigeria's got the sweetest crude, right? Uh, uh, correct. Uh, Algeria, Libya, uh, and uh, Nigeria. Yeah. Um, yeah, trying to... There's so much nuance to, to these markets, and I'm very happy to be having this particular conversation because you're, you. you're, you're helping me connect some synapses in my brain with the, the why different areas uh, have different sort of power structures in the, in the global markets. And so like back to shale and uh, we've been focusing heavily on the political side of things, but like the capital side, like how, how uh, arguably capital has been rightly or wrongly allocated in the shale industry. Uh, okay. over the let, last... me, let me state the following. Uh, shale made a lot of money in the beginning mm -hmm. and a lot of people became millionaires out of shale. So it wasn't all bad. But the massive growth that we've seen, starting with 2005 with shale gas and then 2010 with oil, and the riches that we made, attracted people to invest in the industry who have no knowledge and they don't know anything about oil. It was those people who ruined the industry. It was those people who were screaming and yelling, we don't want to invest in shale anymore. You are, if you go back and, and meet a 70-year-old man who spent his life in the oil patch, they already went through crisis after crisis after crisis, and they will never leave. They will stay there. 
So those people who are screaming and yelling basically about shale, those who are the new entrants or the latest entrants to the industry, and they know nothing about it. They thought it's just like the stock market with the tech companies. You just go in and make money and walk away. Well, that's not the case. So most of the bad news about shale came in from, that, from the latest period. The second one is people do not realize, I mean, focusing on cash flow may not be the right focus when it comes to the oil business in general. Because if you are going to drill a, a well uh, in the Gulf of Mexico at a depth of 2,000 feet of water, this is a multi-year project and your, your spending is going to be massive. And if you are going to look at cash flow, well, you are going to get negative cash flow quarter after quarter. And the nature of shale, because of the high decline rates, that you have to expand all the time, you have to drill all the time. So while the size of the company, in, in normal circumstances, while the size of the company and its assets are expanding, still neg has negative cash flow. And there are cases where private companies who are funded by private equity or others, they go in, let's say, with $50 million. Their job is to grow the company so they can sell it to the bigger fish. So they can go two, three years with negative cash flow. And if you have a researcher who is looking at it, say, this is a bad business. Well, what happened is most of those companies, let's say they start with 50 million, they sold it for 400 million. But once they sell, no one sees the rest of the money. Our researchers and analysts do not see the rest of the money. Everyone is a millionaire who is involved in this company, but they don't see the difference between 400 million and the 50 million. That's true money, but yet you still have negative cash flow for three years in a row. Is... So we have to look in a sense at two, at two different shale industries in this case. The problem we have right now is the shale industry got uh, a, a bad reputation investment-wise. And as a result of it, basically, investors shied away from it. At the same time, we've seen what happened in the stock market, whether tech companies or uh, we are talking about Bitcoin and uh, other uh, currencies, etc. So they shied away from it. Now the industry is starved. It needs money. But unfortunately, there is little money left. Therefore, the only, uh, the only thing they can do right now is try to merge and try to improve their credit, focus on lowering costs, whatever they can do. But they cannot repeat what happened in 2016 and 17, where we've seen this massive growth in US production between 2016 and, two, uh, and, and 2019, during the Trump era, in a sense. But that happened because when prices declined or the market collapsed in 2015, remember prices used to be 120 mm -hmm. and then they collapsed to 35 or so. When the market collapsed, companies already drilled so many wells around and they knew exactly where the sweet spot is, where the core of the core is. So what they did is they get rid of all the expensive stuff and they move to the core. Well, the core can get you, let's say, 1,200, a well can get you 1,200 barrels a day. The one on the periphery basically was getting you 250. So immediately efficiency improved, profitability improved, uh, uh, pro everything about it improved. 
The problem now is when we had the price collapse last year, there is no core to move to. We are already in the core. Mm. So between being in the core and lack of capital, they got stuck. What makes the situation worse is shale comes with high decline rates relative to conventional, which means that if you drill a well today and you get 1,200 barrels a day today, by the end of the year, probably it will be 500. So the only way to maintain your production or to maintain the value of your company is to drill more. But to drill more, you need money. If there is no money, then your production is going to decline. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. Again, the, the expansion of the industry driven by dumb capital, right? You know, a bunch of private equity firms in New York and Boston just throwing money at space. And I know this, again, I have told this story uh, a few times on uh, on podcasts before, but I, I worked at a valuations firm, a third-party valuations firm, looking at mid-market companies on private equity balance sheets and a few oil companies came across my desk and just looking at some of them and again in 2014 2015 2016 taking out 100 million dollars 17 percent pick loans expecting the price per barrel to be 80 to 100 dollars moving forward it's like how how could you ever give this loan out uh, well, and a long time ago long time ago when i was a student i had uh, a course that i took with the ceo of an oil company and he told us this story about the 80s, that one Oklahoma company went bankrupt, and then one of the ma oil majors bought it. And they are in the meeting over an oval uh, table, but very long oval table, and one CEO on one side, the other CEO on this side, and the teams are on both sides. And then uh, almost the deal is done, so the CEO of the major, oil major, basically was yelling and insulting the CEO that, of the company he just bought. And looking at the papers and he was saying, how dare you guys think oil prices will go to 100 while they went to 15 or 10? So the CEO of the company that been sold raised the report. He said, it's from your reports here. <laughs> well, yeah, there's like always this, this optimism, it seems in the oil industry like if the prices are going to keep going up like it seems counterintuitive considering the, the amount of production coming on well we have a serious problem uh and and uh if you look at uh once uh, i walked to a coffee shop and there was this gentleman who was sitting down and and writing something and he looked at me we started talking and he said well i am writing a book and he started telling me about the book basically and 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 the theme of the book basically is that he think the AIDS epidemic basically is not really an epidemic at all. It's way smaller simply because there are many research centers and many people who are benefiting from all the funding from various governments around the world and rich people, and they don't want that funding to stop. And he, he collected all the evidence on that. And if you really take this idea and apply it even to terrorism, it's almost the same. Those term experts, the worst thing for them is to happen is if we have peace in the world. And when it comes to oil, basically, we have this problem. In 2007, I was invited to be the keynote speaker of a major event of a major Canadian bank. And there were traders and investors in that room. Now, we are talking about 2007, 
prices, I think they were like 80 something and they were going toward 100 and uh, more than 100. Um, uh, I forgot the exact price. So I'm just missing the prices like this without uh, a good memory here. But prices were very high. And according to some modeling I've done that the market is going to collapse even if we don't have a recession. That was late 2007. So I presented my case and I showed the charts and I showed them based on that, that the market will collapse. What I did not know is I just created like 200 enemies in that room. <laughs> because all of them are trading based on the idea that oil prices will go to 200. And they convinced their bosses basically to give them more money to trade more. So when we went for lunch, no one wants to talk to me. <laughs> I ended up on a table and there was this guy across the table who was looking at me. I don't know him. I never met him. The moment I sat down with my plate, he started pounding the table like this really hard. He said, I will not sell. I will not sell. I will not sell. I thought he was talking to his friend. After that, I found out that he was trying to challenge me in front of everyone. And I told him, look, you know, my job here is to come and present. You don't have to believe me. I mean, you don't have to take it personally the way you are taking it. Okay. Well, that company, I'm not going to mention the company. I'm not going to mention the amount because if we mention the amount, we'll know the company went bankrupt in 2009. Irrational exuberance, hubris, right? Like even if, like, how could they ever think it was going to go to 200 and, and stay there? Like the, the effects that would have on demand. I don't know. I, it, it was right. very difficult for me to understand several things going on. Uh, in fact, even with uh, what happened in Texas uh, two weeks ago, uh, it just, I mean, now we have uh, power companies bankrupting, I mean, going bankrupt one after the other. Uh, uh, it, I mean, I said something on Twitter. I know I'm going to offend a lot of people by saying it, but seriously, we got to... Uh, uh, kind of re-evaluate re our MBA programs. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's offensive at all. I think it's actually, it's, again, another common theme of the conversation I've been having on this podcast particularly is we need to have more adult conversations around energy production in the mix. Like it, you, can't, you can't virtue signal uh, in hopes of making the world a better place when you're arguably actually doing it. Well, my, my case basically is I think still common sense is the, the, the best degree you can ever have, mm -hmm. okay? And a lot of people do not think, okay, they say, okay, I'm going to build those windmills on, the, on top of that mountain because the wind is very strong, okay? I say, okay, that's fine. How are you going to get there? Oh, I'm going to build a road. Okay, well, who is going to build the, Are you going to add the cost of that road to the windmills? No, 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 that city will take care of it. All right, we built the road. It snowed. Now the road is closed. We cannot get to the windmills. So it's still basic common sense that if you have snow in the area and you have a hill and you've got to climb it in the snow, we all know what happens. You don't have to have degrees to understand that, but they overlook that. It's like the classic, what was it, the Apollo launch that failed? Uh, they, uh, they... Absolutely, absolutely. I, in fact, I always mention a, a story because I think this story is extremely important. Uh, uh, my, my grandfather uh, built a gas station, a big gas station, and his competitors years later basically built a gas station that's about one mile away from him. But they found out that uh, it comes with a big restaurant. 
and they found out that the buses do not go to this gas station. They come to my grandfather's station, although it's on the other side of the highway. So they came into him. I was a young boy, and uh, they, they sat down. They start asking him questions since he's the expert. They said, you know, buses are not coming in. We don't know why. And my grandfather said, well, I already know why, because you, you guys are cheap. And instead of buying the property along the highway, you bought just a small property and you went inside. So it's very tight for the bus to make a U-turn and come back. You, you should have bought it along the highway so the bus can come in and leave easily. Now the bus will have to go in and it have to back up. And the most difficult thing for a bus driver is to do that. And they said, okay, we solved this problem because our property ends with a big ditch and we already hired, the gov uh, we hired uh, uh, an engineering company to build a bridge over that ditch. And the bus basically will go over it. And then they open kind of a Simpsonite and, and they got all the paperwork to show the bridge. So the, the engineering company, the engineering firm already done the design, everything, and they are already looking for contractors to build the bridge. And my uncle looked at him and said, you cannot do it. And he said, why I cannot do it? We have the money, we have the design, and we have the companies to do it. And my uncle kept saying, no, you cannot do it. And my, my grandfather was laughing. And I was childless watching what's going on. Finally, one of the guys, one of the competitors got angry and he said, just because we are your competitor, you are telling us this? And my uncle said, no, but the other land is mine. <laughs> I'm not gonna let you build that bridge. It's incredible. So yeah, you can hire the best MBAs and the best engineers in the world. If you don't have common sense to find out who owns the other land, <laughs> you have a problem. Well, it seems like common sense is severely lacking these days in all areas of life, um, which is like, so I focus on Bitcoin. I'm a Bitcoiner because I believe that common sense at the central banking layer uh, is, is nowhere to be found. Um, it sort of led me down this path to integrate with the oil and gas industry. But I think it's like a, a very big problem in today's world and it revolves around the fact that nobody wants to have adult conversations hard conversations about complex nuanced topics um and what happened in texas in the southwest part of the country a few weeks ago last month whatever it is now um is, is an event that highlights um the the push for non-common sense uh regulations and subsidy programs um, th that leaves us in a fragile state when, when we need energy most. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what, what do you think the, the solution to that particular problem, um, is moving forward? Like what, what and, type of conversations? Yeah. Like what kind of conversations would like, you like to see being had at, um, at the production level and the, in the, well, energy I'm, mix? I'm hoping for something that's very, very difficult to happen. Okay. Get politics out of it. <laughs> okay because that's what common sense is. A lot of people, I and mean, one of the ironies is about Texas, a lot of people who even attacked me on Twitter and social media for taking a certain stand, uh, and mostly they are Democrats and environmentalists, they don't realize that the wind industry in Texas is a Republican industry. It was built by Republican administrations. It was supported by the Republican administrations. The guy who signed the, uh, energy, the Renewable Energy Standard Act was George W. Bush. The guy who really kind of made it happen was Rick Perry, who was uh, the governor for three terms, and then he went to be the energy secretary for Trump. 
They forgot all of that. And they started literally defending the wind industry, the Republican industry, thinking that's what the, the way it's supposed to go. Well, what if it was a setup in a sense, because now they can get more money from Biden even to get to build more. And that's, that, I think that's going to happen. But common sense basically is we need seriously to uh, think about it from an energy security point of view. We have a lot of people who died. The losses, I still have some friends not in their homes until today, <laughs> simply because their homes got flooded because of broken pipes. Uh, so we, 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 the state is not uh, prepared for cold weather. The housing is built in a way, basically, to, to, to be cooled, not to be heated. It's, it's prepared in a way to kind of release heat rather than to keep the heat. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not about only providing the electricity. There are, seem like, more issues to deal with, that including the construction code and including the readiness of cities to deal with the roads. I'll tell you a true story. Um, on uh, uh, Monday the 14th, which was the, the worst day, we had two friends, two families who lost power and lost heat. And temperature was extremely low. So we asked them to come in and stay in our house because we still had power and heat and water. Well, they agreed. The only problem is they couldn't get in because the roads were closed. Yeah. Again, back to common sense. Right. Like, how do you, how do you not have uh, the ability to maybe retrofit garbage trucks with, with snow plows to prepare for something Absolutely. like this? Absolutely. Like, um, and being from the Northeast, Philadelphia, like us having to deal with snow every year, it's something you take for granted how, um, how the, the maintenance of the roads during, during all this, the preparation and uh, the, the, plowing of the roads after after the fact it's something people complain about if it's not sufficient but it, it is uh it is good to have it's something you take for granted and you mentioned rick perry didn't he get like scurried out of uh an energy uh position in texas because he actually like warned that they should be producing more um more coal specifically and and not gas for a particular situation like well that's what he said later but if you go and and check the web and just put his name and put wind you'll be surprised okay all right yeah and i so, mean at the end i mean this is what uh democrats and and environmentalists did not understand about wind in texas it is about money it's not it wasn't about the environment it was about money and to, there are many evidence to show that point. And just to show you, for example, George W. Bush signed the uh, Texas uh, Energy uh, Renewable Energy Standards where the credits are based on capacity, not on production, which is one of the weirdest thing you can imagine, which means that you can build a whole wind farm and not operate it at all, and you still get credit for it. Yeah, that's then he went to the federal government and became president. And then the federal government basically give them credit on production. <laughs> so he, he just set himself up for, for even more easy money. Absolutely. And the, there were several mistakes from analysts that happened during this period. And uh, one of them basically is we, we really, the, the sequence of events was very important 
in this case, because analysts who are mostly Democrats and environmentalists want to start history from uh, February 14, while the events started on the 8th and the 9th. So they want to erase that part, okay, which is not correct. So as independent researcher, basically people should start from the 8th and, and looking at it. The other issue is they, they, they really kind of followed an approach that are unethical if they did it on purpose. And it was ignorant if they did not do it on purpose, which is they want to compare the outage, the gas outages out of capacity. But when it comes to wind, they want to compare it based on what uh, ERCOT was planning to have, not out of capacity. So, so it, we lost, for example, we lost about 30 to 40% of natural gas capacity and they blamed it. But if you want to talk about capacity, we lost 98% of wind. But they, they say, well, wind is not used in the winter anyway. I said, look, who is speaking? I'm not saying that, you guys are saying it. Why we are not using wind in the winter? So th that's the second one. The third one that came out uh, through the hearings Basically, and I think it is a very important point that um, the uh, the gas uh, pumps basically that uh, uh, pump the gas into the pipelines. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, they did not have power, and therefore they stopped, and therefore uh, the the pipeline stopped, and pressure declined. And by the time they get to the plants, because of low pressure, in this case gas freezes because yeah. it's not moving, okay? And it freezes because it has water in it. But if the pumps were working and the gas is moving, it won't freeze in this case. Well, we found out later that those pumps were not considered part of the critical infrastructure that the government decided electricity has to go through no matter what. So when ERCOT started the uh, rotating blackouts, they cut off electricity on those pumps and therefore we did not have uh, the gas that that needed so while yes some of it failed but some of it was the result of a management uh, failure because they should have been included in the critical infrastructure where the power has to come to those uh, stations no matter what yeah that is a shocking level of incompetence like it should be common sense right the it should be and in fact one, one of the problems if you if you if you listen to the hearings basically one of the problems because they were shut off to bring power to them just the nature of the industry this is technical you need at least 24 hours of electricity in this case to restart full production or full flow so it's not like you can just do a switch and then all of a sudden you are fine. So by the time they were, they, they contacted several, for, uh, the, uh, by the time the Texas Railroad Commission contacted ERCOT and others to provide electricity to those locations and they have to give them their coordinates so they know exactly where they are so they can give them uh, or, or connect them. They, by the time they give them this, they still need to wait at least 24 hours to be able to provide that gas. That's why we couldn't ha have it uh, until like Wednesday and then we ended the problem on Friday. Yeah. Yeah, we were supposed to record this, what, a couple of weeks ago? You were out of internet and... and... Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. 
That's great. So do you think anything productive comes out of this or are you expecting more incompetence and political shenanigans? Well, I mean, it's, 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 we are going to see politics at its best in this case. I don't think we are going to see much. It is the state is growing substantially. We have more homes and houses being built all over the place. Now we have major companies already moved in. We already have Toyota moved in. Uh, Tesla is, is planning to move in, etc. All of them out of California. So if they are not going to have a comprehensive plan, uh, power uh, plan basically to, to handle those issues, uh, we are going to have a serious problem. There are two points here to mention. If they believe in climate change, then what happened in Texas is going to happen again. And therefore they have to be ready. And therefore we need major investments. If they don't believe in, in climate change at all, well, this happened, some, something similar happened uh, 126 years ago. So you better prepare for this 100 year event, no matter what. We prepare for the flood. I mean, here, if you own a land in a flood zone, basically they have so many constructions, uh, so many constraints on you, because if you are in 100 year flood zone or 500 year flood zone, well, why you don't apply the same rules to the power sector? Right. Yeah, it seems a bit inconsistent. And for something so critical too, you're getting, getting like the seeing videos of people driving around and, and pointing out people sleeping in their cars in the middle of the energy capital of the United States was mind blowing. It's like, how, how is this possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I guess it's a good transition into a, a focus on Bitcoin. And so I to, I want to focus on two things particularly so that we can get into final using Bitcoin as a settlement layer um, towards the end of the conversation. But before we get there, like using Bitcoin as a tool for producers to uh, add a revenue stream to their balance sheet by using uh, either stranded or gas that would otherwise be flared to mine Bitcoin. Have you done yes, any research uh, into this particular area and how it can make yeah. producers more resilient? Um, generally speaking, we were talking about common sense. Yeah. This is truly common sense. We've seen it even in Russia. We've seen it in other countries. We are seeing it in the United States right now. If that gas is going to be flared or sold at a negative price, it makes perfect sense basically to move a facility of Bitcoin basically and, and use that, utilize that gas in generating electricity and, and use it for Bitcoin. Just common sense. And we are seeing this as a trend. I think we have not seen it in OPEC countries yet, but I think we might see it very soon in some OPEC members. Uh, uh, the reason why we are not seeing it in the major oil producing countries, of course, Russia is doing it anyway. But if you talk about Saudi Arabia or others, simply because they already sequestered their gas long time ago and they created this system. So no, they don't burn gas. And if they don't burn gas and they sell it at a, a, a kind of a, they get a value added from it, from petrochemicals or others, there is no need for Bitcoin in this mm -hmm. case. But if you look at the countries that are flaring gas, and there are many, uh, including Guyana today, for example, where we have those new discoveries, uh, shale in various shale areas that are not connected, uh, the, they, they still burn uh, that gas. So it makes perfect sense. This is just common sense for it. Uh, 
But what is interesting here is, as the Bitcoin operations in terms of setup, uh, computers, etc., probably is not as difficult as building a factory of some something to manufacture something. But once the Bitcoin industry, if you want to call it that way, moves to those places and they have enough power there, I think other industries will move in. I'm not talking about heavy industries, but something as light as the mining of Bitcoin or a little bit heavier might move in too. And that might create value added for uh, producers. So in a sense, I think Bitcoin will be, um, Bitcoin mining will be cited in the future as leading the way for other industries. Yeah, uh, this is, I, I love that you said that because this is a, a thesis that we have a great American mining right? and, and a lot of Bitcoiners have as well as is, is Bitcoin mining operations. You know, our, our goal is to drive our cost of power production and generation down as low as possible so we can mine Bitcoin as cheaply as possible and for as long as possible. So we can keep mining even when the price of Bitcoin goes down. Right significantly um and so again yeah you, you just explained it perfectly we're going to go out there and build these power generation sources use it to mine bitcoin but that will attract other industries and like we like when you think about like even the amount of shutting gas wells throughout the country bitcoiners are going to go there buy that land vertically integrate operations and attract more types of industries and it's very analogous to how uh, societies grew when America was first expanding west. Like uh, one of my favorite stories is many Minneapolis, the city of Minneapolis. You you literally just had a f the way that city started. You had a few lumberjacks hop off a train, start cutting down trees, and uh, to to power stuff and to, to heat homes in, in the Midwest. And that led to more and more people and more industry coming right off that train where the lumberjacks were, and it started a city which grew into one of the bigger cities in the United States. And it was just that search Correct. For, and, for cheap lumber. And one, uh, one side point here is the same trend that you mentioned about Bitcoin mining moving to uh, natural gas, gas areas where gas is flared. Watch this trend now uh, that they biogas. It is possible now to see some small operations in some farm somewhere where they are producing biogas from uh, uh, cattle or from pigs, and they are using that gas, or even from trash dumps, the big, the big one in near near big cities like the one you mentioned, because we get biogas out of that too. Uh, uh, so uh, probably, uh, in a sense, uh, I'm making a prediction here. We might end up in the future with uh, uh, companies like waste management or other or similar building dumps with some of those industries integrated in the plan. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing to say. It'd be beautiful for the Bitcoin network, make it more distributed. It'd be beautiful for these industries, make them more resilient and give them another revenue stream. Like it, it is, it's crazy how, how it closes the loop. And, Absolutely. and talking about common sense, like in common sense around climate change and that discussion, and that's why I love what we're doing in, in Bitcoin mining in general. It helps us become extremely more efficient. Everybody wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just regress to a full green uh, technology stack for, for energy production. It's like, hey, why don't we first, before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, why don't we try to be as efficient as possible with this energy that we're wasting? And then Bitcoin helps bridge that gap. And another thing, uh, you keep the politics out of it. It's a free market driven 
uh, revolution that's going on right now, which is another aspect of it that I just really love. And I, I think right now, especially with the Biden administration, you tell them I'm going to stop flaring gas, they will love it no matter what. Right. Yeah. And it's, we're seeing it. We're seeing it. We're deploying containers in the Bakken right now. It's uh, reducing flare. It's going to be a pretty large undertaking. It's going to take time to to make a significant impact, but you got to start somewhere, like you said, right. and it's it has begun. And it'll be interesting to see how, how quickly or slowly it pro proliferates over the next decade. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I, 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 so are you hearing more uh, rumblings of this in the industry? Generally speaking, uh, people are excited about the news because most most people read it in the newspaper or on the web that this is going on and they get excited about it because like you said, it's another revenue stream they can uh, benefit, uh, uh, benefit from. Uh, to me, as someone, uh, as a researcher, basically, I, I can see the uh, forward linkages and the backward linkages of Bitcoin moving to that area. I know whatever I'm going to say right now is very simple, but imagine this. I see this in my neighborhood almost on a daily basis, uh, especially when I go to uh, areas where they have uh, like those strip malls that you see those foot trucks coming in, just parking there for two hours. And there will be a couple of women basically run, running the show and feeding all those workers and employees and everyone come to that uh, parking spot, uh, parking place where they know the truck is there. So you take some mining operations there and you end up with uh, some people there too. You end up with some food trucks and just take it. I know it's a very simple example, but just take it from there and you right. can see how things expand. Yeah. You need to talk to Ross, Ross Stevens from Stone Ridge Capital and uh, NY Dig. He, like he, he, um, he, he wrote a shareholder letter at the end of 2020 and basically described exactly what you're talking about. Like, starting with these very simple uh, economic feedback loops coming yes. into play because of this stuff. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to say. And again, it's free market driven. And um, it's, it's something I'm very excited about. And, and so like looping back to our first conversation that we had over the phone last month, talking about Bitcoin as a potential settlement layer for international commodities trade. I know you have some interesting thoughts and have, have been thinking about this and, and would just love to, to hear your perspective on this specifically. Uh, let, let's kind of set the parameters of this discussion first. Uh, oil is priced in US dollar and it will continue to be priced in US dollar. Everything we hear about others, basically, it's, it's mostly settlement. And I'm glad you mentioned the word settlement rather than pricing. So what, in this case, oil is going to be priced in dollar, and then it could be settled in any other things, whether euro or uh, yuan or any other uh, currency, uh, and that based on the exchange rate that day or based on what they hedged or whatever the, the agreement they have. So pricing is out of the uh, way right now. It is the dollar. But in terms of settlement, it could be anything. What we know right now is the following. We have some countries that have embargoes being imposed on them or economic sanctions. If you look at the last 30 years, it was those governments that tried to look for something other than the dollar. 
whether it was the Iraqis, the Iranians, the Venezuelans, uh, the Russians, uh, even Myanmar, Burma, uh, etc. It was those people who were looking for others. At the same time, we have a new development, which is the Chinese role in the market. The Chinese are looking at the world and say, you know what, this guy is in trouble. I have a proposal for him that maximizes my benefit, not his. He can benefit from, from this. I can maximize my benefit and he can get better benefits by using my currency or using some other things. I can give him technology or other thing, whatever. And all of a sudden, the, those guys who got stranded and they don't know what to do, they are getting the Chinese help on several fronts, whether technology-wise or others, financial ways of doing it to, to deal with, with this issue. And once the Chinese basically done it, in various ways, including having those uh, UN uh, oil contracts, etc., the road became clear in this case. When it comes to virtual currencies, we found the following. While those governments looked at it, especially if you look at Iran and Turkey in particular, they like it. But the problem is we are talking about old men. And I'm talking about old men when I talk about it like 70 and higher. And I'm saying this with all due respect to, to, to all old people. And we are, all of us are going to be there anyway one day. But what, they, what those people came in with the culture of gold is the safest thing you'll you be with. So I would rather have gold. So we've seen some trade in gold as a settlement, basically. So you trade and then you convert it to gold and you ship the gold. Venezuela and um, Russia. Venezuela, Russia, uh, Turkey, and other countries too mm -hmm. got involved in this. But the point here is, it is. It seems like it's a dealing with gold instead of Bitcoin is more of a cultural thing for those politicians than common sense. Right. It's just cultural. We know gold basically be going down, and if you look at the short term, basically they lost. And, and Bitcoin went up. So probably it needs a generational change. So you end up with politicians who think Bitcoin is going to replace that gold that they've been dealing with. But they did deal with various currencies, with their own national currencies. It did not work out very well. And the reason why it did not work out because those currencies uh, uh, fluctuate and one day they go up, one day they go down, et cetera. And those are government to government uh, deals. Uh, they are not as flexible as the, the, the regular business contracts and they are not as savvy as the business contracts. So you end up with losses uh, in this case. So in terms of oil, uh, people still prefer the, the dollar settlement in various ways, but I've done, I've done a lot of research uh, uh, years ago where I try to calculate the uh, price, the real price of oil, in a sense like comparing a barrel of oil exported versus goods and services imported. Mm -hmm. So no currencies in this case. And one issue was very clear that inflation being eating up into the barrel of oil big time, big time. So the value, the real price of oil basically being going down, which means that for the oil producers like Saudi Arabia, for every barrel of oil they export, they are getting less goods and services. 
you know, the purchasing power of the revenues is... Absolutely. Is, so yeah. the purchasing power basically of a barrel of oil uh, uh, being declining. And the reason why, because oil is priced in US dollar. And the US dollar basically against other currencies, historically for some periods basically went down. We ended up with inflation in the United States and other countries, etc. So it has a negative impact on the purchasing power of a barrel of oil. The question now is, will we price oil in other currencies to avoid some of the negatives of pricing in dollar? Now, I know a lot of people are talking about this conspiracy between the US government, the Nixon administration, and the Saudis. And wherever you go, you read every article on the issue, or you go you listen to shows, and they bring this secret agreement. Well, you know, it's been 50 years. We did not see a single document. We did not see any certain person who was involved and in, supposedly involved in this talking about it, which is very strange. And all of a sudden became this kind of like the uh, uh, urban myth that there was this secret deal, etc. But there is no, no evidence of that secret deal at all. And if you go back and look at that period, you find that there were negotiations and the Saudis and OPEC members basically discussed various ways of dealing with pricing oil, including uh, the IMF SDRs. And there were studies and reports and all this stuff on this. So they've done all the work. And their conclusion was, yes, we are going to end up with inflation and this is going to eat into the real value of exports, but it's still the best option among all other options because pricing oil in single currency whether it's the dollar or any other currency had the same disadvantages. It's not necessarily to the, the dollar. Even if you price it in any other currency, as long as it is a single currency, you have the same disadvantages. You price it with DR, you end up with other problems. You price it with a, with a basket of currencies, you end up even with bigger problems. A lot yeah. of people do not realize this. The reason why, because if you look at OPEC members, they are scattered around the world. Their trade partners are different. So if you create this basket and most of the imports of Venezuela, for example, and exports are with the United States, while others are with Germany, and you have deflation in the United States and inflation in Germany, someone is losing because of that basket. Yeah. So, so, so basket is not going to work in this case. So what is the alternative in this case? There is no alternative for pricing, simply because beside everything I mentioned, we need enough liquidity and only the dollar have that liquidity because oil is the most traded commodity on earth and only the dollar had that, that uh, liquidity and only the dollar had this credibility. Even if you go to the uneducated people anywhere in the world, they understand the dollar. Right. You give them a dollar, they understand it. You give them something else, they don't like it. And probably they think it's fake. So, that's in terms of pricing. But in terms of settlement, it could be anything. And in terms of settlement, if you look at what happened with the money of Iraq in the hand of the UN when Saddam Hussein basically asked them to switch it to euro, well, the dollar was going down, the euro was going up. So he made some money because of that exchange during that, during that period, <laughs> in this case. So... And the opposite might happen. It just he was he got lucky at that time. But if we had the opposite where the euro is going down and the dollar is going up, he would have lost massive amount of money. 
So what is the substitute in this case? Something you can go to and does not have those losses and does not have this inflation effect. Is it Bitcoin? Is it some virtual currency? Is it something? What is it? I think and that's Bitcoin. where the research needs to be done. I think it's Bitcoin, right? And I really like the fact that you mentioned that research has been done to research whether you should use an SDR, a basket of currencies, and research basically came back. Like, it doesn't matter. All of this is going to have the same problem because these currencies are inflating. This is due to the fact that central banks are coordinating globally dovish monetary policy right they're expanding their balance sheets globally whether it be the bank of japan pboc uh, ecb the fed they're they're all going in the same direction so it's like pick pick the the horse that, that you think is is going to stay in the race the longest which the us dollar obviously is everything's going to collapse into the dollar now bitcoin exists and it has a completely different monetary policy completely reverses the the game in terms of like hey now we're going to have this hard currency on the market for the first time in quite a while uh so you have a, a free competition for currencies truly now right, where you have a completely separate currency from the government and central bank issued currencies in the form of bitcoin and I, I think i wouldn't be surprised if if it begins to to eat away at the settlement layer of of the international trade i mean that's where bitcoin but we got to be careful I, mean, I, I understand exactly what you said, but we got to be very careful. Why is that? Uh, okay. Um, this morning uh, and yesterday, basically, I've been asked the same question about whether oil is going to hit $100 or not. And my answer, despite the fact that we have some analysts of some major banks talking about $100 oil, my view is no, because China built up this massive uh, crude oil reserves as strategic petroleum reserves. And once prices hit 75 or 80, they are going to literally release this crude and cap, at least cap prices mm -hmm. if they are not going to lower them. Take this exact example and take, take oil and put Bitcoin in instead. So Bitcoin sitting on balance sheets and if the price goes high, people selling to lock in. And, in a sense, and not only that, it, I mean, you mentioned, because you mentioned central banks and their control. We might end up with government's influence if they buy enough and release enough. Well, they better get on it, right? Because the, the amount of Bitcoin that's been distributed to the market, some like 90% of all Bitcoin that'll ever exist. 90% Correct, of tw but, but, 21 million. But still, million. still a country like China, they can buy a large portion of them anyway, right? I mean, we already have seen Tesla influence. They just spent, what, 1.5 billion or something. Mm -hmm. And we already have seen the influence on Bitcoin. Well, if they release it right now and get rid of it, probably they will wipe out whatever increase we experienced. Now, Agreed. imagine if China comes in and instead of 1.5 billion, they use, let's say, 50 billion or 75 billion or 100. So I'm just kind of being, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious here that the intrigue of government, now these are not central banks, these are going to be governments, it could be even some uh, CIA of some country. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, well, but, but let's play through the game theory of that, right? Like, would they do it publicly in this? Or would they do it behind the scenes, do you think? Because there's, there's a big social... Uh, difference there like say they do it publicly china or the us or whoever says hey we're going to buy 50 billion dollars worth of bitcoin and that immediately has well, the masses and the, the business community is going to know i mean no matter what and then 
the intelligence of various countries are going to pick that up and they're going to start talking about it and on uh, the briefing to the president in the morning they are going to have some, a couple of lines telling them what's going on so i think no matter what the the country is going to know uh, uh, either way uh, uh, but but i'm just warning that the involvement of governments of purchasing a large amount is going to have an influence similar to the central banks in a sense but the only difference here central banks we have some coordination and gray-haired people or bold people who's been there for a long time here we might get uh, a 32 year old politician basically playing with the world who knows yeah but it, right like if my wondering like, this could certainly be right and they could try to use large purchases and sells to manipulate the market and suppress the market to some degree but also you know, it's publicly known like does that incite a speculative attack on the fiat currencies where it's like all right if the governments that are supposed to be protecting the efficacy of these fiat currencies are buying bitcoin <laughs> does that in turn uh, prove that the fiat currencies don't have any value in the long run against bitcoin and does that incite like a so we talk about hyperinflation a lot in the markets and people focus on the monetary aspect of it, but there's also a social aspect to it, correct? Like when at a certain point, the society just doesn't view the currency as something they want to hold. They, they get it, then it's a hot potato. Venezuela, Argentina, uh, Lebanon in, in recent years, uh, proving that like there's once a, there's a tipping point socially, and from a from a psychological perspective, it's hard to go back. So even if they bought a bunch of Bitcoin with the intention to drive the price up high and then sell, maybe when they go to sell, they're selling back into a currency that doesn't have the same value that it did when they initiated the per purchase in the first place. No, that, that's a perfect point. I'm, I'm just warning that, uh, uh, I mean, you mentioned the, the control of the central banks and their, their impact. I'm just kind of a counter argument to it, mentioning no, yeah. that governments can... Can do that too and probably central banks can play the game again uh, and the reason why i'm saying that big back to common sense if you look at the oil industry for the last 140 years and you look at the oil majors the oil majors have always always controlled the competition so if there's a new technology they will go and buy it regardless of the cost if there is something growing that might compete with oil or gas in the future they go and buy it We've seen this behavior all along and they spend billions and billions of dollars. So the expansion of those oil companies right now to renewable energy and charging stations is not new. I know some people are getting excited. Oh, this is, uh, you know, uh, policies for climate change and we are going through the energy transition. From an oil point of view, no, this is the same old behavior we've seen 100 years ago. It's about control. Interesting. And there are they are doing the, the, the wind and they are building those wind turbines in the sea and doing all this because it is about control. You control the competition in this case and that's what you do. Even there is an argument to be made that the entry of oil majors to the shale was about controlling the shale. It's not about investing in it. Hmm. So yeah. you, you, take, you take that idea and apply it to the discussion we are having and it just kind of like common sense that, well, probably it's about control, regardless of what's going to happen to the other currencies. Interesting. Something to be aware of, anybody listening to this. No, I, I completely agree. There, there, there's going to be some uh, attack against the network and the currency itself. I mean, the entrenched incumbents 
have <laughs> stakes are yep. very high in the world that they operate in. So they think it's just going to happen pretty easily. It's a bit naive. So no, thank you for that. Uh, the common sense insight and, uh, throughout the whole conversation, not only on this particular topic. And again, I, I, I really thank you for your time today. I know you're a busy man and, and the fact that you would come have a discussion with me, I feel very uh, fortunate. So Anas, thank you um, for everything you do and for educating. I, I've learned uh, more in the last hour than I, than I have in quite some time. So thank you for, for helping to educate me. Thank you very much. And it was a pleasure. Well, thank you. I hope you have a great day and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. sometime. Uh, anytime, anytime. Awesome. Well, right. thank you guys for joining us. You're welcome. Have a great day.